The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. We've now got Don Sims who's uh, going to give us a talk on the Skyhawks. So yeah, um, Skyhawks, my favourite subject. Um, no booing, you've been warned. <laughs> Um, so I've got two Skyhawk presentations, but I'll do the one on the um, RNZF Skyhawk service. The other one um, is, is just about the, the history of the Skyhawk and how it was developed and used around the world, but we'll focus on this one for now. Happy to do the other one another time. Um, so yeah, a wee bit about me if you don't know me. Um, spent 17-odd years in the Air Force as an avionics technician. Um, worked mostly on the Skyhawks at Ahakia, but also a little bit on air trainers and Mackies and Sioux and Iroquois at Hobsonville for a while as well. Um, co-wrote the author of the book Skyhawks or Dave might want to hold it up there if you haven't seen it uh, which was published in 2011 uh, with Nick Lee Frampton so a lot of the photos if you've got the book you might recognise in his presentation I'm um, a volunteer guide at the museum here on Saturdays and uh, live and work in Christchurch so this is a, a timeline of what we're going to cover today um, the presentation takes about an hour so I'll, I'll Try and go as fast as I can so we can get behind. Uh, if you've got any questions, just sing out. It's a good opportunity to ask. So, yeah, in the 1960s, the RNZF was going through quite a modernisation with Ian Morrison, and there's a picture up there somewhere in the Morrison room. Um, he was the man behind the, the RNZF purchasing Hercules, Orion, Zeroquois, Sioux, um, and one other project he had was the Canberra replacement. but. He never quite got it over the line before um, he, he left office and retired. Um, so in the, the 1960s, we sort of visualised what uh, jets were like around the world. They were mostly supersonic. Um, Australia had just ordered the Mirage 3 for, for their fighter jet. Um, Vietnam has, was just kicking off. Um, the POMs had lightnings and uh, they were just introducing the TSR-2, or going to. Um, the F-111 was sort of in development, so... That was the, the era, and the RNZF operated um, cameras. <coughs> Excuse me, I might grab that water. Cameras and vampires. Um, the vampires being uh, pretty short range, um, sort of day fighter, no real sophisticated avionics in them, no radar. Um, the cameras themselves were actually reasonably new. With this model, the camera, the, the BI 12, we'd only got them sort of late 1950s, 58, 59. So by the mid-60s, they weren't actually very old, but technology-wise, they were. They were obsolete. Um, we'd operated cameras uh, in Singapore during the uh, Malay emergency and confrontation with Indonesia, uh, but they were just leased off the RAF. Uh, so, yeah, 19, 1960s, our cameras were, were 
were pretty much obsolete. Did they have yeah. satin and silk at that stage? Sorry, were they? Did they have satin and silk in the avionics at that stage? Don't know, sorry. Okay. Before my time. The one advantage that Canberra had was it had two engines, two crew, um, and was very deployable. You could take a Canberra anywhere in the world just with the, the two crew, self-start, as long as you had cartridges, and very deployable, and redundancy with two engines. So a yeah, nice little shot there from 66 with the brand new P3 and the, the RNZ strike when flying alongside. Um, there was various contenders out there for the uh, Canberra replacement. Uh, F-111s were, were talked about initially. Quite, um, Ian Morrison was really keen on the F-111, um, but he realised that we'd never be able to afford them, and it was such a new technology still, the swing wing, and as it turned out, it was a bit of a disaster there initially. Um, Australia was just introducing the Mirage 3, and they were really keen for the RNZF to, to buy some of those Mirages because they were being assembled and built in Australia, so... You know, economically for them it would have made sense. Um, obviously Vulcans were flying around but uh, we already had one in service, <laughs> if you didn't know. Um, the F4 and uh, F5 uh, were quite high on the list of contenders, uh, as was the Starfighter. Uh, but the Phantom was, was pretty much the Air Force's first choice. It was twin engine, two crew, exactly what we're used to with the Canberra. Uh, and yeah, pretty pretty high performance, high tech aeroplane. And then that, that's a good model of what they might have looked like in our NZF service had we got them. Uh, but reality was the budget that the Air Force were given to work with uh, was only enough to buy probably eight Phantoms. And, and everyone realised that that was never going to work because you probably have four serviceable out of the eight and that was just not going to be worth, worth the effort. Um, it wasn't helped by the New Zealand dollar devaluing continuously through the 1960s and then decimal currency came in and it devalued even more so the money they had in US dollars to work with was just getting smaller and smaller. One other type that was looked at was the Corsair uh, which was actually a, a de design that was developed to, to replace the Skyhawk in US Navy service um, and interestingly, there's no Corsairs flying in the world anymore, and that was the aeroplane that was designed to replace the A4, but there's still a lot of Skyhawks. Uh, the F5 was about the only aeroplane that was within our budget that we could get a, a decent number. Um, however, it was pretty limited with its range and payload. It was twin engine, so it had that extra safety factor. Uh, but in terms of where we were in the world and deploying the aeroplane, it was always going to be a problem because it didn't have the range to fly to Australia even. So then along came the Skyhawk. Um, I've heard the story about the Douglas man and his projector coming to Wellington and he's, he put up his projector and showed the film of basically A4s dropping bombs in Vietnam and coming back with you know, big holes in them and putting it in his little uh, sales pitch did the trick because next thing you know, we were getting Skyhawks. Um, this is an interesting photo, I unfortunately didn't have that photo available when we did the book because I would have put it in it and it shows you know, Keith Holyoke sitting in an A4 with a nuclear powered uh, aircraft carrier cruising through Crook Strait. <laughs> Wouldn't see that anymore, would you? Uh, so, yeah, 1968, uh, government approval was given to purchase 14 Skyhawks. Um, and they have some sort of early Douglas art drawings of what they would look like. Uh, the, the one here was a very early one. Uh, obviously, it's just the, probably taken the Royal Australian Navy drawing and changed the roundels, I'd say. 
1968, yeah, we signed up to, to purchase 14, 84, well, 10 single-seaters and four two-seaters. And as part of that, uh, squadron Ross Donaldson, who was a 75 squadron uh, vampire Canberra pilot, uh, went on an exchange posting to VA-44 in, in the US to learn to, to fly them and to become an instructor, and he was going to train all the New Zealand pilots. And that was him there, just talking to the then CAS, the RNZF, who was going for a backseat ride. Uh, but unfortunately, in 1960, late 69, Ross Donaldson had a you know, bird strike on a Skyhawk. Um, he was in the back seat, a student in the front, um, and the bird penetrated the canopy and went into his face and head. Um, he lost one eye and, and nearly lost the other, and he was very badly injured, and he had to eject from the aircraft. Uh, so that was the end of his A4 flying. So in 1969-70, there was uh, training done for Air Korean ground crew. That was the 10 pilots that went over to the US uh, to fly with VA-44 in Florida at Cecil Field. And some quite uh, famous individuals amongst them, if you recognise them. Trevor Bland there, Ross Ewing. Um, and yeah, standing behind our aircraft, as the aircraft came off the production line, um, they were flown from Long Beach in California to Florida uh, and, and in fact the squadron was formed off our own aircraft. And that's zero one just at the Douglas factory getting its, its sort of final checks before its first test flight in December 1969. And you've probably seen a few of these photos in the book. Interesting one, that one, it's an Israeli A4H, which was also coming off the production line at the same time. Now it's got no markings on it, and that was just because of the sensitivity of the Israeli aircraft uh, being sold brand new to the Israelis. So. You said it's not the hump, No, the A4H initial models didn't. It was like the A4G, the Australian one, didn't have it either. But it also had the drag chute and a squared off fin tip, same as ours, but just didn't have the hump and avionics. Ours didn't have the avionics either, it had an empty hump. 51, and um, those that have been following A4's 51 uh, crashed at Nellis Air Force Base a couple of months ago with Draken. That was the cockpit as delivered. Um, some of the, the kit in there was, uh, even though it was new technology for New Zealand, it was actually pretty old technology for the A4 and for jets. Um, the, the radar was a very basic air-to-ground radar. Um, wasn't actually much use for anything. It was just ballast flying around an aeroplane. Um, it, it could find uh, ships at sea. Uh, that was about all it was good for. Uh, it was no good. It couldn't find aircraft air-to-air, no air-to-air mode. Um, and it was a totally manual thing that the pilot had to constantly be heads down, which was never a good thing in a fighter jet when you're flying along low and fast. Uh, the the gun sight was a very rudimentary gun sight. It was actually less uh, sophisticated than the vampire's gun sight. At least it had a, a gyro stabilised um, gun sight. This, this was literally just a chinograph pencil mark on the windscreen, as one pilot described it. <laughs> uh, uh, the all attitude indicator was a pretty big instrument in the instrument panel, um, and it was actually one. At, one item of avionics which was quite useful. Um, it, it was a really good attitude indicator. You could do aerobatics off it, it wouldn't topple. Um, and it was developed from the Apollo space program. So, a 
if you ever see Apollo 13, the movie, there's a big abba indicator in the instrument panel, same as that. Um, uh, some of the other kit in the aircraft, there was a chaff flare dispenser uh, controller there, and these warning lights along here were associated with the ECM system on the aircraft, this, this BOTSAM and AAA. Um, that was all Vietnam era stuff that was just standard coming off the production line. Um, while we had all that in the cockpit, we didn't have any of the boxes and the hump that made it all work. That was the humps, they were empty. The, uh, the wiring and racks was all there, but the boxes weren't sold to us and we weren't allowed them. So eventually um, all this kit was removed. And I remember when I first went to Two Squadron in 1987, there was a box, covered box under the bench in the avionics bay full of all this kit. And I think, yeah, I wouldn't mind a bit of that, but <laughs> it was all just thrown out, no doubt. Um, otherwise, it's a pretty st standard analog aeroplane. There was no digital avionics on it at all. Yeah, the navigation computer down here was a purely electromechanical device. Uh, worked off Doppler, so it didn't even have an inertial system in it. You could only have two waypoints in it, where you were now and where you were going. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it uh, wasn't particularly accurate because of Doppler, so the aeroplane needed to be flying straight and level to get a good Doppler return. And if you lost that Doppler return because you were manoeuvring, um, it would go into a backup mode using just airspeed and, and air data, but it was pretty inaccurate. When they'd fly from this, uh, New Zealand to Australia, it wasn't unusual to be 30, 40 miles off track um, using the, the navigation system. This aeroplane's been handed over uh, at the Douglas factory uh, in January 1970, and then they said they were flown across to Florida where the pilots and ground crew were doing their training. That's Trevor Bland there. Uh, nice shiny new aeroplanes, they certainly never looked that clean when we worked on them, they uh, the colour scheme was a bit unusual for a, a naval aircraft. Um, you can see down the line there the Navy ones are all grey and white, pretty standard. Um, we adopted the US Air Force Southeast Asian camouflage scheme, which was uh, that brown and two-tone green with a, a whitey underside. Um, and we sort of spoiled the camouflage by putting white antennas and you know, red, big white drop tanks on it. Are they straight probes? Yep, initially they had straight probes and then they were modified in 74 to bent ones just, just to prevent fuel going down the intakes when they were refueling. That was a US Navy mod. So we had the aeroplanes sitting in Florida and then they decided how to get them to New Zealand. The pilots were all pretty keen to fly them. They were pretty confident they could fly them with the anywhere refueling, but um, the senior Air Force leadership wasn't keen on that, so they arranged for a, a US helicopter carrier to, to bring them to New Zealand. So they were wrapped up in their cocoon um, latex suits and, and put on the deck of the USS Okinawa and, and uh, sailed from San Diego via Hawaii to Auckland. And those lucky individuals that were over there managed to get a ride on the ship and, and experience Navy life for a couple of weeks. And they had a pretty good time by all accounts, apart from when they hit this big storm just out of Auckland. Um, it was a, a really severe storm and the captain of the ship was really worried that he was going to have to cut the chains and let the aircraft go because the ship was top heavy with them sitting on deck. But fortunately that didn't happen and uh, they eventually landed, uh, arrived in uh, Auckland. It's sort of ironic that they started their life in their own and latex and ended it as well as we'll see. 
yeah, it was a pretty mean storm. Um, that helicopter was also strapped down at the front, and later on, the, the storm and the waves actually bent the blades and buggered. You know, they were folded like that deliberately, but later on, the waves were actually smashing right over the top of that and bent the helicopter blades. But fortunately, there was no damage to the A4s. So they arrived in Auckland and were unloaded, and um, Helen Clark is in there somewhere. <laughs> haven't got a photo to prove it, but I, I'm confident she is in there. And Phil Goff as well. And then they were towed through the streets of Auckland and then down the Norwestern motorway to Penuapai. So yeah, it must have been quite a spectacle. Both lanes. Of the Western yeah. yeah. All two lanes yeah. I love this, this shot here because you get an idea of the era of the motor vehicles. Yeah. You know, in late 60s, 70s all motor vehicles. And, uh, they're all British, aren't they? Yeah, they're probably all British. Yeah. And here we were with these you know, brand new high-tech jets, and we still had them 30 years later. You know. And then, uh, yeah, unwrapping them like Christmas presents in Whanaupai in the hangar. And you can see that the latex coating is just literally like a cardboardy paper that was just ripped off. So it's hardly surprising that 30 years later when they sprayed it on, that it didn't last too well out in the weather. Um, and then that's on arrival at Ahakia, some of the first aircraft. Um, this device here is the Huffer GTC air start cart. Um, initially they came like that so they could be mounted underslung under the aircraft centre line and actually flown with it on. Obviously they take the wheels and handlebar off it, but it was all designed to be flown under the aeroplane to give the aircraft a self-start capability. But we never used it like that and quickly we took the, the jet engine out of that and made our own GTCs, which were much easier to, to, to move around the fly line. Some quite historic photos there of the, the line of A4s with the cameras behind. Um, and again, the aeroplane's all beautiful and shiny and new. No hydraulic and oil leaks. And they even got the groundies in their white VIP overalls seeing them in. That's a great shot to show the size difference between the three types. And then from that you can see the A4 really is a small aeroplane compared to even the Vampire uh, in plan view. That also shows the, the effectiveness or otherwise of the camouflage and these great big white drop tanks sort of ruined it. But you'll see we eventually fixed that. And you spot the A4. Just there. See the shadow. That's Palmerston North Clock Tower. Um, everyone wanted their photos taken with the A4s obviously because they were brand new. So. This colour photo was only recently found in the archives here. Prior to that, I'd only ever seen it in black and white. And uh, Matthew recently found it in colour as well, so there's some historic vehicles amongst that fleet. <laughs> what, what is that? That's the fire. That's just the MT motor transport section of the Hokie here. The tankers and tankers and cranes and yeah, tugs. Probably the Christmas photo. And that was 75 Squadron in December 1970. Uh, the original weapon capability that came with aircraft was just pretty standard for the A4. Um, no real smart weapons, it was just all dumb bombs and rockets. 20mm um, cannon uh, and Zuni rockets of 5 inch and 2.5 uh, and inch. And various size bombs from 250 pounds up to 2,000 pounds. So those ones there are 250 pounders, I think they'll be 500 pounders, 1,000 pounders and 2,000 pounders as well. And you can see that's actually a later photo with the bent probe. Um, we got Sidewinder air-to-air missiles in 1974 uh, as well to add to that. 
just to give the aircraft a self-defense capability. That's quite a good shot of she was all bombed up. I don't think we would have ever dropped that many bombs at once because that would have blown your whole year's bomb budget. <laughs> but the Sky was a bomb truck. That's what it was designed for, was to, to drop bombs and fire rockets. Close air support. It was never easily a, a, a fighter, but it turned out to be a very good dogfighter just because of its small size and maneuverability. Machine guns, isn't it? Yeah, the 20mm cannon in the wing routes. Yeah. But they weren't very good, they would jam very quickly when you fired them, they often jammed. And that was something, no matter what we did, we could never solve. Uh, 1970, of course, the Vietnam War was on. Um, we'd sent our vampire, then vampire, and Canberra pilots to Vietnam to fly with the US Air Force as Fort Air controllers. Um, a number of them, like Ross Ewing, John Scrimshaw, and many of them, uh, flew with six-month tour in Vietnam as Fort Air controllers. But unbeknown to most people, we also sent ground crew. Um, and these were 75 squadron guys. We sent two groups. This was the second group. And they operated with VMA-311 uh, at Chulai, which was a marine squadron. Uh, the first overseas deployment was in 1971, and that was to Williamtown, which is north of uh, Sydney. And while they were there, they flew down to Nara, which is where the Australian Navy had their Skyhawks based. And Nara would be where we would eventually operate a squadron of A4s in the 1990s and on that same flight line. The first uh, major overseas deployment was in 71 also, which was Exercise Vanguard, which went to Singapore. Um, and they took eight single-seat A4s on that, which was the first real big trip. Throughout the 70s, Ahakia was a pretty exciting place to be with lots of overseas visitors. Um, the Brits would come with aircraft carriers and all sorts of exotic airplanes like Sea Vixens and Buccaneers, um, as well as their regular Vulcan visits. And of course the, the Yanks would come a lot with all the aircraft as well. There's just some more shots of various firepower demonstrations. Now there's been a bit of talk on various forums and Facebook of late of a place called Camp Sanson at Ahakia. And this was Camp Sanson, which is away, the base is away over here, and it's as far away as you can get from Ahakia the base so you can load up live weapons and bombs so if anything goes boom it's not going to blow up the base. It was uh, closer to Sensen than it was Ahaki which is the nearest town. But yeah, desolate place, um, nothing out there, no facilities. <laughs> it was that, a great place. Is that where Siberia was, the camp? No, Siberia was further down where the Air Force Museum used to be, right. where three squadron new buildings are now, that was where Siberia was, the workers' camp. The Australian Navy visited pretty regularly too with their A4Gs that either off their carrier or they actually did deploy across the Tasman a couple of times as well for exercises. The Australian A4G was almost identical to our A4K, it just didn't have a hump. Um, all in other respects it was exactly the same same engine. Same oh, the, the fin was rounded off but that was just because of the antenna that was up top, IFF antenna. They didn't have a drag shoot either. Getting uh, overseas, particularly to Southeast Asia, required quite a massive effort. Um, the Scott couldn't go anywhere without a lot of ground crew and support equipment. Um, so to deploy eight Skyhawks, you'd needed three Hercules full of groundies and equipment to support that, plus a mobile TACAN unit, which would go by uh, 
well, this, these days it would have been another Herc, but in later years it was the Endovers would do that job. And they would fly ahead, set up the mobile tech end so that the A Force could navigate using tech end because the nav computer wasn't too good. Um, around Australia and, and in New Zealand, we had tech end stations, but as soon as you got up into Southeast Asia, there weren't any. Um, this shot here, you can see that's an ammunition can for the 20mm gun, which lived up in here in the Ford Hellhole. They've had to take it out because they're obviously working on something up in there. Any guesses what it would be, Blair? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be hydraulic, anything up in there. But yeah, they'd be full of beer cans. And after three hours at 30,000 feet, it was always nice and cold. The hump was also good for carrying things like that in it because it was empty. That was a traditional route to get up to Singapore or Malaysia. Um, three and a half hour leg across the Tasman to Richmond or um, Niara. Um, and then another th three hour hop to Townsville, Darwin, Bali, and then Singapore. Uh, if you had air to air refueling, obviously you could cut out some of those legs, but because we didn't have our own tanker, the A4 could be used as a buddy tanker, but you couldn't transfer a lot of fuel out of it. So, so in the early years, we never um, air to air refuel. It was only later years, once you know, the Aussies got their 707 tankers, um, that we did. Sort of, you'd, you'd skip the Townsville leg and you fly straight from Nara up to Darwin and then from Darwin straight up to Singapore. That would take three days doing it that way. Um, and you know, if one aircraft broke down somewhere along the way, you'd generally have to hang around and wait. Everyone would wait till it was fixed. You'd have uh, three Hercules, or in later years, a 727 and two Hercules. And the, the first one would leave a Hakia with all the groundies and support equipment, fly to your first leg, the A4s would leave and then everyone would jump on the next Herc in the Boeing and head off and that would jump up to Townsville so they'd be ready to see in the A4s when they departed from here and you just kept leapfrogging like that. It worked, worked really well uh, and, and of course you're also relying on the Hercs not breaking down which they always did, particularly in the places, nice places like Darwin, they always seemed to like breaking down in Darwin. In Townsville, they haven't changed, have they? <laughs> 757 seemed to like breaking down here. You didn't use the hooks for air to air? No, we didn't have the pods on them. Just to give an idea of the amount of kit we had to take in the pack ups. Um, initially, it was all just loose items like this, but in later years, we got a bit smarter and built up a palletised um, container or bin, and everything was you know, designed for whatever test equipment or spare parts, um, and that, that made a huge difference to the amount of room. Because uh could carry a, a lot of stuff, and usually you bulk a herc out with stuff before you weight it out, so you, you, you end up filling it up before you've actually filled it weight-wise, payload. We'd always take a spare engine, so that's the engine trolley coming on, um, and you'd pack as much in and around that as well. In later years we also modified it so you had two spare drop tanks mounted on top of it. Uh, the deployments, some of them uh, were pretty rudimentary. This one's in Fiji in the 70s, uh, tented camp right beside the, the flight line. Um, I haven't got a shot, but there's some great shots up in Malaysia of the guys having a shower with a fire hose and fire truck hosing them down. That was the showering facilities. Uh, yeah, so right through the 70s, deployed up to Asia at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, uh, for a six or eight week deployment. At that stage, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia didn't really have uh, modern frontline fighter aircraft. 
Um, they were just starting to get them. The F5 was probably their, their, their latest acquisition there. That's in Malaysia. Um, interestingly, Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia all ended up getting Skyhawks pretty much because they, they liked ours so much. Now the only time the Skyhawks fired their guns in anger, the Kinnan incident in 1976. Now that's the there. You can see it was only a very small squid fishing boat. Um, it, it was caught fishing within the 12 mile limit off Taranaki. A uh, Navy patrol boat uh, chased it, it refused to stop for it, um, including when they fired their twin 50 cal machine guns across the bow, still wouldn't stop. So they called in the Skyhawks and uh, it was the last day of the financial year at Ahakia and just happened that they were doing weapons program to, to spend the, the last of the weapons budget for the financial year and they had a big piss up organised for at the end of the day to celebrate the end of the financial year. Um, so they, they quickly uh, loaded up some Zuni rockets and 20 more which they already had for the weapons program and sent out uh, a few A4s. Jim Jennings was the lucky one who got to fire his shots across the bow and it only took one burst, 53 rounds across in the water in front and the, the boat stopped and allowed the Navy to board it. So. 06 is the Skyhawk which is now in Motet up in Auckland. Uh, that's the 20mm cannon there, with the butts at Ahaki are just test, testing it, very noisy gun, you, you hear them testing them from all over base, just really loud, boom, 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 quite impressive. Um, came with various uh, types of rounds from armour piercing, tracer, um, high explosive, the blue one was just ta a target practice, so it didn't actually explode when it hit anything. But like I said, yeah, pretty unreliable gun. It was always jamming. It was a pneumatic operated gun, so it needed uh, nitrogen to operate it. Uh, yeah, like I said, the US came to Ahaki a lot through the 70s and early 80s with their F4s and F111s and various other things, as did the Australians and the Mirages and F111s. Uh, but we also went on a number of American ANZUS exercises, including to Hawaii for RIMPAC. And you can see there a nice flight line of A4s from Australia, US and New Zealand. Guys flying along the beach in Hawaii and um, flying with some pretty interesting aeroplanes. Uh, the Australian kangaroo series of exercises were uh, another quite important exercise back in the ANZUS days. And yeah, some great shots of your A4s exercising with B-52s and stuff. Uh, yeah, 1981, 75 Squadron formed an aerobatic team. Anyone know what that stood for? No, nothing special, but quite good aerobatic team. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? R red and gold, nothing special, but quite good aerobatic team. <laughs> Typical Kiwi understatement. Uh, Cope Thunder was another US exercise up in the Philippines that we were invited to. I think the first time we went was 81. Um, and that was, yeah probably the highest level that we ever exercised with the US. They, they had everything you could imagine there. Um, and by then our A4s were getting pretty old and uh, obsolete, certainly in the avionics department. But yeah, we still acquitted ourselves very well. Um, technology was moving on and the Falklands War was in 1982. Uh, in 1983 the Royal Navy came out here with HMS Invincible and some Sea Harriers. They'd just beaten the uh, Argies and shot down a number of their Skyhawks. Uh, when the Invincible was sailing towards New Zealand, it was quite traditional for the Skyhawks to go out and welcome them. 
and of course they do it properly, then uh, sneak up on them and attack them. And the the uh, invincible was quite embarrassed because they never detected the <laughs> incoming raid and never launched an aircraft in time to beat them. So um, the Harriers operate out of Harkia for a week or so, and um, in air combat with our A4s, they found our A4s were a little bit different to the Argentinian ones, uh, certainly in the pilot capability, even if they had far better technology in the Harrier. So yeah, the 1980s was uh, a time of what do we do with the A4s, they're getting old, the avionics in them is unsupportable, the airframes and engines were still good for a fair while yet. Uh, the Air Force's first choice would have been to, to get some F-16s, uh, but obviously that was expensive. Uh, there was various other types around, the F-20 Tiger Shark was being trying to be sold by Northrop, and that's what it might have looked like in areas of service. Um, again, A7 Corsairs, there was second-hand Corsairs on the market, very cheap, and we were offered a whole squadron of those for virtually nothing, but uh, again, they were an aeroplane that was coming to the end of their service life, so it was probably a good thing we didn't. Uh, but just with perfect timing, the Australian Navy uh, had had their carrier scrapped in 1982, and then the government said that's the end of the fixed-wing fleet, and, and put the A4Gs up for sale. At that stage they only had 10 left, 8 single-seaters and 2 two-seaters. They had lost 10 in accidents in the preceding 12 years. So in 1984 we signed up to buy the aircraft and all of the spares and support equipment. Uh, the cost, I think it was about 29 million Australian dollars for the 10 aircraft and the spares we got with them was just unbelievable. The Aussies had so many spares, we had nothing compared to what they had. So the spares we got with that deal was worth more than the aircraft themselves, so it was amazing. And then that was the, the day they left Nara to um, cross the Tasman. Pretty sad day for the Navy because those guys, most of them were made redundant pretty much the next day. So. And then that was them arriving at Ahakia. Um, interesting fact about the Aussie aircrafts, uh, half of their fleet had been bought second hand from the US Navy and they were ex-Vietnam veterans. And I uh, researched each airframe uh, when I was in the Air Force and, and got their full history on which units had been on and which, how many combat sorties they'd done. So, um, yeah, they were all genuine warbirds. Uh, when they arrived, they were put through a G to K conversion to, to make them the same or near as to the RNZF aircraft. That didn't include putting a hump on them, but we modified them, put the drag chute on them, um, squared off fin tip and various other avionics upgrades just to make them compatible. They still flew around with their Navy camo for quite a while. In the meantime, we went on another Cape Thunder. And you can see some of the cool hardware that was on the flight line there. 1984, you know, F-16s, F-15s would have been pretty, you know, like, be like F-35s and F-22s now if you went to an exercise. Um, you might remember there was an election in 1984 and the Labor government came in and the anti-nuclear legislation, and as a result of that, uh, that was the end of ANZUS. So the last ANZUS exercise that was held was Triad 84 in, in New Zealand, which was the largest uh, air defence exercise that had ever been held in New Zealand. Um, the Aussies sent over Mirages, the Yanks sent F-16s, F-15s, well, the Aussies sent F-111s as well, the Yanks also sent AWACS and um, KC-135 tankers. So Pretty amazing exercise. It was the year I joined the Air Force, 1984, so I got to, to watch from the school here as all the jets flew around. Um, and that was the last time we got to play with the Americans up until very recently. 
some shots of Troyad. Uh, also in 1984, because we now had another 10 Skyhawks, uh, they decided to form another Skyhawk squadron, which was number 2 squadron, and they were to be the conversion training squadron to, to train the pilots to fly them, and that would allow 75s for them just to be operational. And you can see the multi-colour scheme flight line there of the different colours of the jets over there, including one that was just in bare metal. Colourful T-Birds. Two different Aussie colour schemes, um, our original colour scheme and then that was the, the Euro 1 camo scheme that we went to with all the aircraft. A very effective camo scheme that one um, and it was a wrap around so it was the same underneath. This uh, aeroplane was painted up in US markings for the Walt Disney movie The Rescue um, that was where the Bristol freighter we escaped in a Bristol freight and Skyhawks came and saved the day or something. And they uh, wanted US markings on the aircraft. They wanted live sidewinders fitted to the aircraft, which various people weren't too happy about, but they, they, they insisted they'd be live ones because they reckoned all the aircraft spotters would know live ones from dumb, dummy ones. Never mind the fact that they were Skyhawks and the US Air Force never flew them like that. But. <laughs> and just, yeah, again, the three different colour schemes. And how effective that is, if you don't actually, if you just sort of generally look at the screen, that just blends in. It's probably just the white of the bomb rack, you can, it gives it away. Uh, yeah, it was a really effective chemo scheme, that one. Yeah, just through the 80s, just some of the stuff we did with them. Yeah, Concorde could easily accelerate away from it, but it was a good photo op. And 1987 for the Air Force's uh, 50th anniversary, they they painted they painted the Skyhawk and uh, the gold colour scheme, and you know, the the humour of the groundies is always pretty good. So they put a paint left over, so they painted someone's car as well. <laughs> but that was actually down at Woodburn. The guys were on a course. It was an SNS course, and they yeah, somebody got the leftover paint and painted it up. Uh, 87 was the first time the Aussies came to New Zealand with their F-18s. That was the first time we got to play with them and pretty quickly realised that these things were yeah, pretty sophisticated with their flash radar and weapon system compared to our old sky, we had none of it. And that was just some of the formations from the Air Force's 50th anniversary. Uh, the Brits sent over a couple of tankers, TriStar and uh, uh, VC-10. You notice that the A4 is actually refueling the VC-10 there. <laughs> Sucked it dry pretty quick, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it was just for the photo. But you think about the jet blast and the, it must have been a, getting a few of the buffet down the back here. Not designed for refueling, something like that. Uh, some big formations were flown in 1987 as part of the anniversary, um, including a 18-ship uh, Skywalk formation and... Uh, a 30 ship jet formation which had all the jets that were at Ahaki at the time Strike Masters, Skyhawks, Mirages and F-18s so that shot there is part of that it's not all of them So that 18 well, that's all of the Skyhawks? That was all the serviceable Skyhawks at Ahaki at that time we had 24 Skyhawks oh, at that time yeah. so there would have been yeah, probably 6 in servicings that would have been in Ahaki that included one that was in bare metal, was way down there, and the gold one as well. 
uh, Kiwi Red aerobatic team was formed uh, for the first time was 1986, but uh, every year after that they sort of reformed it for various events, including the uh, RNZ 50th anniversary. Uh, we were allowed to fire off all our uh, time-expired AIM-9G sidewinders because the explosives in them had all reached its end of life and couldn't be re-life, so they were all launched and fired off. And then in 1985, uh, Project Kahu began, which was the avionics upgrade to the aircraft. And it's just a before and after look at the cockpit, the technology. Uh, so for early 19, or mid-1980s, that was cutting edge, it really was. State of the art, and that was uh, when I got involved um, on the Skyhawks again was '87, and then uh, went to two squadron in 1989 for the end of the test flying program. Quite a big job. The aircraft were completely rewired, so they ripped all the wiring out, and all new looms were made up. Uh, a lot of it was digital, so a lot of the um, communications between boxes was by a digital data bus rather than individual wiring so that saved a lot of weight. Um, the head-up display was from Ferranti in Scotland. Uh, at the time it was uh, the most advanced head-up display that they'd built uh, and I've talked to one of the Draken pilots at the 75 Squadron reunion the other day and, and he's, he's an F-16 pilot and been flying the latest F-16s and he reckons it is still better than the F-16 hut. Just the, the way the symbology is presented and the, what it can do. So that's pretty good to hear. But you can see what a tight fit the HUD was. To get it to fit into this little space, uh, it, yeah, it was a real nightmare. And to also allow the pilot's legs to clear it when they in an ejection, they actually had to chamfer off either side here just to give a few more millimetres clearance for the pilot's legs to come through. Because you can see from those shots there, your feet go down there to the rudder pedal, so your knees are actually sitting in here. So for the, if you eject, it's got to go up through that gap, and it was very tight. No, it was a, it was made just for us, and they subsequently sold a lot of those to a lot of other air forces that were upgrading their aircraft, including um, Canada with the F5s. Singapore's A4's got the same HUD on them, uh, Taiwan's F5's, yeah, so we developed it and subsequently others adapted it. Yeah, yeah, it was always going to be, well this will be interesting. <laughs> yeah, and he, he was a, uh, the, they were big guys too, the ones that ejected, so yeah, it all worked. They did pull trials with the seats, with a crane, they all had to get in the full kit, get in, strap in, put their feet on the rudder pedals and then they pulled the seat out just to see if they were all cleared. And there were a couple of pilots that didn't know they had to stop flying. Um, the head-up display had a TV camera up here and um, it recorded through the hut. Um, and again, it was for its day, it was uh, cutting-edge technology in terms of miniaturisation of cameras and stuff. That's just a diagram of the, the avionics system and the, the data bus system that it all talked on. And in its day it was just cutting edge compared to yeah. <laughs> compared to what we had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Um, all of the wiring looms were made by Pacific Aerospace up in Hamilton and just making the wiring looms was a massive job in itself because they you know, all have to be made to fit exactly through the bulkhead holes and round corners and 
So they, to do it, they put it on these pin boards and map it all out and, and have to make it up and then trial fit it and make adjustments. Uh, a, a really big job in terms of its design. But that was all done in Hamilton and they did a great job. Um, Pacific Airspace also built a lot of the reload boxes and uh, panels in the aircraft. And uh, Fisher and Piper also printed off most of the circuit boards and, and componentry and made them up. So there was quite a lot of work done in New Zealand. Uh, and the quality of all that stuff was really good. Um, the, that's the instrument panel. That's the back of it, you can see. But that was all manufactured at Woodburn and designed by Air Force engineers at Woodburn. Um, the radar was out of the F-16, so ABG-66. So it was, yeah, again, cutting-edge radar. Radar warning system, which was new to us, um, and then hands-on throttle and stick, so the pilot can operate the aircraft just without taking hands-off throttle and stick, without looking into the cockpit. So it really did uh, improve the capability of the aircraft. Instead of carrying around all that ballast and radar and avionics that we had pre-carried, <coughs> it actually did something now and worked. Uh, that was just a screenshot of the radar symbology. Might bore you with the details. <laughs> um, that's a, a shot that Draken actually took for the, their publicity stuff. I think it's probably one of the best shots of the cockpit I've seen. Just shows everything. Um, because we now had a really good uh, avionics and weapons system, we also got AIM-9L sidewinders, which were the latest um, version of the sidewinder. Um, meant that we could actually take the Hornets on. Uh, even though we didn't have quite have the airframe engine performance that they did, we had the, the weapon systems to match them. And in many regards, our avionics system was better than theirs. Uh, What's that on the side of the intake? I was wondering. Uh -huh. Didn't you know Skyhawks had out? <laughs> yeah, when the Aussies came with the F-18s in 1988, we thought, right, we're going to fool these both. So we, we made these canards up and put this out on the flight line, um, waiting for them to taxi in after they landed. And they had to taxi past it. And of course they all went, ooh, what's that? You know? And so the pilots played them on for several days that we come up with this canard for the aircraft and improved the turning performance of the aircraft. And other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we played them along good. <laughs> At the same time as uh, the avionics upgrade, we also did a wing, wing refurbishment because the, the original wings were about 4,000 flying hours, which was as when the US Navy said they would start to crack and that was what was happening. The wing spars were cracking. Um, that's the forward spar there, the middle spar and rear spar. Blair's probably done a few repairs on those spars. Yeah, uh, it involved replacing all three spars in the un was it the lower skin we did or the upper? Yeah, the lower skin. So the original skin on the top was kept. That's where all the access panels are, but the lower skin was all replaced as well. So is that is that a good one? Yep. Oh, that's not. That's actually in the US Navy photo. That one. I haven't been able to find a good photo of ours. But it was the same. We went over to the US Navy because they were doing it, so we learned how, how they were doing it. Um, we bought a full set of 24 wing spars off McDonnell Douglas. They still had brand new ones sitting there that had manufactured but never used. So we got the last wing spars in the world. Um, and that program ran in parallel with the avionics upgrades. So effectively relifed the aircraft. The, the US Navy um, had originally designed the Skyhawk to last for about three to 4,000 hours. That's all they thought it would last. Um, the wings, were, that was about as long as they last during carrier operations and 
you know, combat. Uh, but the fuselages were good for a lot more than that. And some of the US Navy A4s got up to over 12,000 hours on the airframe. So probably had new wings, several new wings in that time. But And some of our A4s, well, now they'll be up around 9,000 airframe hours. They were eight, over 8,000 when we sold them. They were clapped out, weren't they? They were. <laughs> no armourers in the room? Gunnies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Maverick missile, air-to-ground missile, was another weapon we introduced to Kahu. Initially just the TV-guided version, but later we also got the infrared one, which was des designed for anti-shipping. We only got to fire two of them during the Kahu test flight trials. After that, they were worth too much money and you weren't allowed to fire anymore. So with that guy in the back seat, is he guiding it? Yeah, no, he was filming it with a video oh, camera. Yeah, <laughs> that's Rick Bolger, the base commander. It's a good thing the photographer got it right, eh? Oh yeah, <laughs> and those missiles went whoosh real quick. I was on the ground with the zoom lens trying to, f and the thing just went whoosh, gone. Couldn't see it. And the, the rocket motor only burns for about two seconds, and then after that it's just purely on kinetic energy. Oh, really? So you, you can't see it, even though it was a white missile, you could not see it until it went boom on the container that it was aimed at. Yeah, really, really good missile. Really good photographer. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that we only did one live firing on a sidewinder A9L. Again, we bought a hundred missiles, um, we're only allowed to ever fire one of them. And I'm sure we gave them away for nothing at the end of yeah, the last decade. Something like John Smith's got them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. we might need them. Uh, we also introduced the laser-guided bomb, GBU-16, with Kahu, even though it wasn't connected to any aircraft systems in terms of its guidance, um, it could be dropped from a pre-Kahu aircraft as well. Uh, it required a laser designator from a ground designator or another aircraft. Uh, but yeah, it just gave us another capability which was pretty cutting edge at the time. And during the Gulf War, if you think this is you know, early 1990s when the Gulf War was happening, all these weapons that we were introducing were exactly what was used in the Gulf War. Now uh, that's just 1,000 pound uh, general purpose Mark 83 bomb. So air burst, so you can set the fusing in them to be either air burst or impact on the ground but that's the air burst so you can see you wouldn't want to be st standing above ground or even in a trench underneath that. Now the last Kerry Red team was formed in 1990 um, and then they had the fatal accident and there was no more Kerry Red after that. That's quite a cool shot taken by my mate Andy Radker who was a photographer at Hakia. That was the shot, really great shot but then someone took a shot of him from the, he had to duck he thought he was going to get smacked <laughs> <laughs> yeah by then the aircraft was pulling up <laughs> and then just the post carry weapons still got the same dumb bombs guns rockets but yeah now we've got some smart missiles to go with it uh, Continue with our annual deployments to Southeast Asia, even through the ANZUS uh, breakup, we were still able to exercise with Australia and the Singaporeans, Malaysians, Thai, um, and of course they started getting you know, F-16s and aircraft that we could only dream of. Uh, but with our KO avionics and, and pretty good pilots, they could still certainly hold their own against an F-16. Um, then the Aussies got the 707 tankers, so we were able to utilise those in Australia and they came to New Zealand a few times as well for exercises. Just gives the aircraft a whole 
Lost Boy gives the A4 a whole different sort of mode of operation because you don't have to carry fuel, you can just carry your weapons and fuel off the tanker. Um, these bottom shots were taken on a VC-10, an RF VC-10 tanker up in Malaysia. Um, in 1991, uh, two squadron was packed up and sent to Australia to Nara, which was where the Australian Navy operated their Skyhawks until they sold them to us. The deal when they sold them to us was that the Australian Air Force was going to take over the role they did, which was fleet support, attacking ships, training the, the ships, gunnery and radar systems, and the Australians were going to use the F-18s for that. But the Australians pretty quickly realised using a very expensive F-18 for that sort of thing was going to, one, wear the aeroplane out really quick, because flying at low level over the sea, you, you are going to wear it out. Um, and, yeah, they just didn't want to do it. It wasn't sexy enough for them, so they just stopped doing it, and it left the Navy with a hold. So they approached New Zealand and said, would you like to send some Skyhawks back here and we'll pay you? So that's what they did. We, we sent two squadrons to Australia for 10 years. They paid for everything. Um, and I was lucky enough to go on the first push, 91 to 93. We got a, a rent-free house, fully furnished, they paid the power, gas, phone. It was amazing. And um, yeah, it was a really good good deal for New Zealand. Um, yeah, and two squadron, we deployed all around Australia, um, exercising with their Navy because they had two fleets, one on the west coast, one on the east coast, so we'd have to go to both and chase their boats around the country. Um, and uh, got pretty good at it. Is that why one of the squads has lost it on the west? Yeah, they were over there exercising with the Navy. Yeah. It was doing air to air combat, but it was part of the Navy exercise. Um, two Squadron only ever had six aircraft over there, but um, regularly 75 Squadron would deploy over there to supplement them. And in 1999, we ended up with 15 jets on the flight line at, at Nara, and we flew all 15 of them um, in one sortie, which was quite interesting just getting them off the ground and getting them all back on at the end. <laughs> uh, but they did one massive ship strike with 15 jets, which would have been pretty interesting for the Aussie Navy to try and sort out. General shots of time and narrow. We did a lot of air shows, that's one of the Avalon air shows. Uh, it was great PR for the RNZF. Um, the Aussies also asked us to do, we opened Bathurst a couple of times, um, Sandown 500, so yeah, we were a squadron for hire. <laughs> <laughs> especially if it involved some free tickets to something like that, and we'd definitely do it. Like the I was just going to say, yeah. Speed speed. Oh, yeah, boys came up with some pretty cool patches. We're definitely part of the um, Australian Navy over there, but very much still part of New Zealand. We're very proud of that. So. Until Helen Clark came in along, anyway. Um, so, yeah, in 1998, uh, I was on 75 Squadron, and there'd been rumours that we were getting F 16s, and we all just scoffed at it and went, Yeah, right, you know, never happened. And then it did. <laughs> Didn't. Um, yeah, at the end of 98, uh, yeah, the government signed a deal to lease 28 F-16s from the US. They were brand new aeroplanes, but uh, this was yeah, some of the pamphlets and publicity stuff. It was a pretty exciting time to be on 75 Squadron, knowing we were going to be getting these aeroplanes. Um, but of course it all came to a grinding halt shortly after. Those are the aircraft actually in the desert. They were uh, built originally for the Pakistan Air Force, 28 of them. Um, but Pakistan was playing with nuclear weapons at that time, so they had a big arms embargo put on them. So the aircraft were test flown out of the factory and then put straight into storage in the desert, and that's where they were sitting. And the U US wanted to really 
move them on and get rid of them. So that's why they saw us as a real good way to get rid of these aircraft. The Pakistanis had paid for them, and they weren't going to get the money back. So the Yanks didn't care what they got for them. Um, they were F-16A models, which was the, the early model, but they'd been modified with all of the sort of modifications of the later versions, including the engine, which was um, the latest, most powerful F-16 engine. Um, they also had a, oops, a big elevator on them, which our pilots were really looking forward to flying these in dogfights because with the light airframe of the F-16A and the big engine and the big elevator, they were going to be able to outturn anything. They were really were going to be a good dogfighter, but fortunately we never got to do it. So, so that was the facts of it. Um, 13 single-seaters and 15 two-seaters. So there was a lot of two-seaters in the buy, but that was just because that was what they were. Take it or leave it. So the intention was to fly 22 of them and six of the two-seaters would be broken down for spare parts. Um, I think the highest hours any of them had on them was 10 hours. Uh, that was a 10-year lease um, and split into two five-year blocks with an avionics weapon system upgrade at the five-year mark. So there was a lot included in the package that wasn't really made public at the time. Um, the lease cost was just $12.5 million a year for 20, all 28 aircraft. That was, uh, it was unbelievable. It was the deal of the century. And the Australians couldn't believe it because they'd been buying F-18s and all these aeroplanes and costing billions and billions of dollars, and the Yanks had never offered them a deal like this. And here was us that had pissed the Yanks off so much, <laughs> and they offered us this deal, and I was like, wow. Um, there was a one-off cost for, for spares and training and weapons and support equipment, um, but that was just about totally going to be offset by the sale of the A4s, because at that stage they were still worth about $200 million, and the Philippines were going to buy them. And again, that was all being facilitated by the Yanks, because they wanted the Philippines to get into a new aeroplane to replace the old F5As, and they saw our A4s as being a, a good type, so... It was all going to work to everyone's favour. Um, and at the end of it, we had the option of buying the whole fleet for only 140 million US, which was peanuts, really. Um, the contract was signed in August 99, and then in November 99, there was the general election. That's what they would have looked like, probably, that colour scheme there. We would have just painted New Zealand markings over the top of the... The Pakistani colour scheme, they were just in that grey colour scheme. We wouldn't have painted them like that. Um, as part of the DICJ, yeah, we were selling the A4, so they produced this glossy brochure and videos, which were quite fun to, to assist with producing. We flew through the Philippines after one exercise in 2000 to um, sort of show the aircraft off to the Philippines government, and we played all the head-up display footage from the exercise we just had with the Malaysians, including shooting down MiG-29s, and, and the Philippines, were, they were just, wow, you know, because they were wanting something that had some you know, capability. But, yeah, then that happened. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, by March 2000, it was obvious it wasn't happening, and then there was probably going to be worse to come. Um, so pretty much from 2000, you know, the pilots started leaving. They could see the writing on the wall, and they were being offered jobs in Australia, flying Hornets, and, and, and then the RF. So yeah, they just all started leaving. Um, the F-16s themselves, though, because we didn't want them, the US Air Force and Navy just went, well, we're having them, because they could see what the, they were great aircraft with their um, dogfighting ability. So they formed a squadron at, um, of Navy aggressor aircraft, 
uh, and they're still using them for that today. I think it's 12 of them uh, being used for that. Uh, some went to the US um, test pilot school and some of the National Guard units picked up a few as well. But yeah, they certainly didn't muck around and wait for us to come back and say sorry. Eventually Pakistan was allowed to purchase some of the aircraft and about half of the 28 ended up going to Pakistan. So that this was one of them on its delivery flight. So, so about half of them are in the States still flying and half are in Pakistan. Meanwhile back in New Zealand it was uh, back to business with the A4 uh, and a lot of uncertainty about our future. I'll just quickly go through the accidents and losses of airframes we had. Uh, the first one was engine failure in October 1984. Um, the oil pump on the engine had been assembled incorrectly and, and, and the oil pump had been changed. Um, nothing was picked up during engine runs on the ground and uh, the, the test flight took off. Everything was fine. Uh, the pilot was Wing Commander Fred Kinvik, a um, really experienced pilot, and um, he decided to do some touch and goes at the end of the test flight. If he just landed, he probably would have been all right, but on his first touch and go as he started climbing out, the engine just stopped and full gear down and dirty with um, no airspeed on. There was nothing you'd do, so he just banged out. So that was the RSF Skyhawk's only kill. <laughs> Prize bull of bulls. Um, yeah, I think, believe we had to pay a lot of money for that bull. But yeah, that's the cockpit, so it was, he made a good choice to get out of it. That cockpit now has actually been rebuilt and is on, well it's not on display, but it's here in the museum in the back in the uh, reserve collection hangar, and it's been carhooed so it's got a head up display and all that in it, so it is that cockpit, took a lot of work to rebuild it. But it wasn't a carhooed yet, was it? No, no, this was 1974. The, the aircraft came down, you know, resume intact, and because the engines in this piece, it was fine, they were able to pull it out send it away and find out exactly what happened to the oil pump. And you can see the wing there. Yeah, yeah, the bearings all seized. Uh, next one lost was 1981. Uh, T-Bird uh, just flew into a hillside in the Ruhoni Ranges. No one saw it, no one knows what happened. And Yeah, could just control flight and terrain, no doubt. John Dick was uh, apparently a really nice guy. Young fellow, only 26. Initially, when they found the aircraft wreckage, there was two parachutes hanging in the trees, and they thought, oh, God, he's ejected. But um, it was just the impact that initiated the ejection sequence. It was a T-boot who was flying, but there was only one person in it, but the rear seat always fires first, so that had gone before. Now, the next one was Townsville in 1985. It's one of the Australian G aircraft. They didn't have a drag chute in the back, and... Uh, one of the advantages of the drag chute was landing on a wet runway to enable the aircraft to slow down quickly because um, you'd be aquaplaning on the tyres landing on wet runways. And unfortunately, yeah, this guy got all sideways and tipped it on its roof. And he managed to climb out of there. He smashed the canopy himself just before the fire crews got there and, and crawled out that hole there. But the aircraft was uh, subsequently repaired and is now flying with Draken in the States. It was a big, big repair though. It needed new wing, new aft fuselage and a lot of work. Uh, wheels up landing in 1989, two squadron jet, touched down short of the runway on the grass, ripped the undercarriage off on the right hand side. Um, so he managed to get the gear up and um, put, well, managed to get it enough, just you can see where it is there, it came up to about 45 degrees before it jammed. 
uh, was above the level of the drop tanks, so they gave them the okay to land on the drop tanks. Um, and that's, yeah, that was the sort of rolled out sequence. You can see a bit of flame from fuel in the drop tanks, but it extinguished itself pretty quick. Had a groundie in the back seat, good mate of mine, Spiel. Um, the arrestor cable snagged around the, the drop tank and the, the undercarriage leg here, it didn't actually catch the hook. And later on, when they investigated it in the inquiry, they found out that the US had also landed several skyhawks on their drop tanks, and a number of them, the arrestor cable had ridden up over the nose and gone through the canopy and decapitated the pilots. So we're very lucky that didn't happen here. Um, the, yeah, the, the procedure now, or the, after that, was you don't use the wire, you just land and slide. And there was actually very little damage to the airframe. There was a bit of damage to the nose, and a little bit of damage to the wing. The drop tanks were obviously stuffed, but the, the rest of the aircraft was pretty good. Um, Kerry Red Midair, 1989. Um, the manoeuvre they were doing was a roll under brake, so that's what it should like. So each aircraft in turn rolls and pitches away. Um, in Crater's case, when his nickname was Crater, not a very good name for him with what happened, but um, when he did his roll, he didn't pitch, he just rolled, he just went droop, and then went, whoop, fuck, and turned left and started doing his pitch, but by then this guy had gone whoop, underneath him, and so you'll see in the next slide. So he got out of sequence, so this is Graham Carter here, he should have been way over here somewhere, so he couldn't see this guy here just because of, I guess, the canopy and where the positioning was, and then that was the moment of impact underneath Red 5 there, and this is the the damage to Red 5, it smacked into the bottom of the wing and the buddy still broke the rear spar right through here um, and it would have just decapitated them. Um, they found his helmet and pieces of the canopy way, way back from the crash site So yeah, and the armoured glass of the windscreen was bent like a banana so yeah, there was no hope of him having survived that. Uh, zero 08 was uh, engine failure 92 yeah, pilot ejected, um, but in the sequence of the ejection, the seat, man seat separation here, the um, life raft pack, dinghy pack, which he was sitting on, separated from the whole thing somehow. Um, fortunately, he landed on the beach down here, but you can see how close the sea he was. Um, if, if he'd landed in the water, he wouldn't have had a dinghy pack, and that's you know, what you want when you're landing in the water. Um, were you involved in that one, Blair? Yeah. yeah had to dig it out, it, yeah, there was just a mangled mess and to try and figure out what happened from that was a massive undertaking, we never really did, but it was fuel interruptions. Yeah, some sort of interruptions of fuel supply to the engine, but what? Scott Armour. Scott Armour. Did you rebuild that coffin? Most of it's probably still in the farmer's hole. Yeah. <laughs> you can just, I think, where's the drag chute? You can just make out, I think that's the Vikings current of the drag shoot at the back. <laughs> and the, I think the nose had come, sort of folded itself into yeah. a big banana, isn't it? Yeah, the engine was actually Heavy landing at Ahakia, and again, at this period of time, we were having a lot of uh, fuel problems on the aircraft, and the pilot got a uh, low fuel warning indication not long after takeoff, and, and he had to get back to Ahakia because his gauge was saying, You've got no fuel. Um, he didn't have time to dump fuel out of the drop tanks and get rid of the rest of the fuel, so he landed way overweight, and that was the, the result. It just snapped the undercarriage off when he touched down and um, skidded off onto the 
grass. So that's Skyhawk 54, which is now in the museum here. It was repaired after that. They had to rebuild the wing and do a few other repairs to the aeroplane, but it, again, it got repaired. He was very lucky, though, because uh, it could have turned really ugly. Another engine failed in 1996, um, and this one was, uh, again, another oil problem. It was an oil pipeline on the side of the engine, uh, fractured and broke, so all the oil was lost. Um, he turned around, got all the oil warning indications, headed back to Harkia, but the engine seized and he was uh, having flames coming out the tailpipe, so um, he ejected. It was only eight kilometres from a Harkia, but didn't quite get there. And again, you can see from the crater, it was another mess, there was not much left to go by, but that was the engine. You can see how condensed it is after its interruption. But from that, they were able to find what happened in the broken pipeline and subsequently find that we did have a, a similar problem on a number of engines. And again, this is all age-related stuff that you, you're learning by you know, use of the aeroplane. It's getting old. Um, 11 over an hour. Um, during practicing doing air-to-air -air refueling demonstration, the plugged barrel roll, which was of our party track at air shows, Moses Nelson there, had never done one before, as had his um, wingman who was in behind plugged in, but neither of them had ever done the plugged barrel roll routine before. They were uh, practicing for an air show in Melbourne. They had one practice, and this was the practice, and then they got it horribly wrong over an hour, and um, Mars ended up yeah, crashing into the ground, just... Yeah, never, never pulled out, but he, he knew he was going to go in and he called over the radio to Eastie, who was in the back jet behind, to pull up. So Eastie pulled up in the, literally in the tops of the trees. I've seen the HUD tape and he was right in the trees when he pulled out. So very close, but Muzz being just a little bit in front of him, a bit lower, he just couldn't and hit the ground. So yeah, pretty sad time. And the last one was in March, so only a month after Murray Nelson's accident. Um, another two-squadron jet, this time over in Perth, and doing air-to-air -air combat, and yeah, just departed control flight, doing too much, trying to do too much, and um, spun, flat-spun the aircraft, and had no choice but to eject. But fortunately, this time, the seat pack all stayed with him, and he was bobbing around in the ocean for a couple of hours, waiting for a rescue helicopter to come and get him. Yeah. Uh, lots of other incidents and accidents over the years. Bird strikes were a common risk to any fast jet at low level. The biggest one we ever had is this one here. It was an albatross, went down the right hand intake, and you can see the damage there. Absolutely horrendous. And um, fortunately, none of those metal bits went down in there. There was some small metal bits went through the engine because it had quite a bit of damage, but it kept going and enabled the pilot to get back to Fenuapoi. Um, that one there was a good one while I was on 75, just it was a hawk, again, just punched right through the side of the intake. Um, that aircraft was Ford Scott 14, and the insides of that aeroplane still stunk of fish for years, because it was an albatross full of fish, and it stunk of fish for years. Um, the, the repair for that was to cut the whole intake off and get another one out of the desert, cut one off another US Navy aircraft in the desert and splice it in. Big, big repair. Had to be done at Woodburn. And yeah, a few other whoopsies over the, the years. This one here was uh, an over an hour pilot on his conversion course. Um, as part of that, they have to do a emergency generator check, which is a little ram air turbine that they pop out. 
and it just acts as an emergency backup power. Um, so there's several yellow handles in the cockpit, and he was instructed, right, identify the, the handle that says emergency generator. Yep, got it. Are you sure it's the emergency generator handle? Yep. Right, pull it. Of course, he pulled the canopy jettison handle. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Unfortunately, when the canopy left the aircraft, part of it struck the tail and did that damage there, which again was a pretty major repair. But it was all done over in uh, Nara by the skin gods of Sefer and Co over there. And then they yeah, found the canopy eventually. The piece that went through the tail was that piece there. Uh, that one there was a high tension power line in 2001. Uh, the pilot was very, very lucky there. He flew between two wires. The top one clipped the tail and he somehow scummed through the, the middle of the wires. So yeah, 2001 wasn't a good year for A4s. I mean, at that stage we all knew we were in history and, and uh, unfortunately our safety performance and record went downhill with it. Yeah, so 8th of May 2001, <laughs> Helen and Phil Goff announced the end of the RZF Air Combat Force. Um, some of the claims that they'd never been used to support the Army, they were clapped out. You know, it was all just total lies. In fact, the day they announced that, 75 Squadron was doing this up at Wairu for the SAS, dropping bombs for them. So yeah, didn't go down very well with us. Because we'd apparently never done that. <laughs> uh, the final deployment to Singapore in September 2001. September 2001 might ring a bell. I left New Zealand on the day the Twin Towers got bombed. That's me, and younger, younger me. But yeah, even that didn't uh, change the government's decision. And, uh, we st stood there in awe in Singapore watching all these US squadrons of F-16s, F-15s, everything flying from the States to well, Saudi to Afghanistan to start the, the war against terror. And we just stood in awe and looked at what everyone else was doing and we thought, hmm, guess we're not going. Uh, we had lots of media come over for that deployment because it was the last one. So there was lots of interviews about what people thought about what was happening. It was a pretty sad time. Um, that was the last bomb that the Skyhawks dropped, 1,000 pound LGB. Yeah, I wished I'd had that for the book. I only, I only got a copy of this last week. The, the guy that took it said he's been too scared to put it out there on, on the net. <laughs> but it was on, he put it on Facebook last week, so I said, right, I'm going to use that in the presentation. <laughs> but yeah, that was the feeling. Um, yeah, should have delivered it too. Yeah, sad day, disbandment and uh, farewells. By then I'd already been made redundant, so I came to the parades as a civilian because most of us got kicked out in November, but the last day was 13th of December. The final five pass and the end of an era. That um, photograph there of the Skyhawk uh, behind the tower, um, uh, would that be the same, the final beat up at Haikyuu? No, the, well, the, well, that was the last one for this, but there was still the demonstrator aircraft at Haikyuu for another four years. I saw that. that very similar shot to that. I think, I think you'll see it shortly. <laughs> so, yeah, 75 going to fly on a Haikyuu flight line, should be full of Skyhawks. Um, Unfortunately, it's empty still is. 75 hangar is now empty. There's nothing in it. And the uh, squadron standards are in the chair port of Hakia. So the disposal saga, um, I've put that in here because it, it uh, was a bit of a 
saga itself. It took over 10 years. Um, someone came up with that billboard. I think it was Craig Brankin actually came up with that. Because they were sold many times over those 10 years. Um, I work for Safe here at Ahakia at this thing called ACFADU, which is Air Combat Force Disposal Unit. Um, Safe here took over the maintenance of the A4s and Mackies while they were trying to sell them. So I worked for them for nearly a year after I left the Air Force. And that was our hangar, which was the old AMS hangar at Ahakia. We had initially five A4s and all the Mackies that we were flying. So it was quite a busy time. Um, we had lots of people coming over to look at the A4s and every time they'd turn up we'd do this. <laughs> we only had two A4 pilots left at that stage. They'd all, all the rest of them had joined the Australian Air Force or the British Air Force. Um, but gradually, yeah, we, we've gone, both of those guys were gone as well. Um, so in 2004, yeah, the, the A4s were stopped flying. Um, most of the A4s were at Woodburn in storage. And initially they were in indoor storage like this, you know, really well wrapped up, looked after. They'd be engine run every six months, so take them out, run all the systems, just keep them ticking over. Um, the final A4 flight, July 2004, yeah, that's that shot there. Chris Underwood, he, he was an ex-A4 pilot, he was studying at Canterbury University and he, he was the only A4 pilot around that was prepared to come back and just fly the A4 occasionally for demos and that. So yeah, December 2007, they went outside and, and under latex, and while it looked pretty sharp, the latex, when they first put it on, a week later it looked like that. A week? Yep. Um, don't know what they did wrong, but they must have used water base. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it looks like to me. As yeah, yeah. uh, soon as the water got on it, it just dissolved it, it melted it. And then the water got trapped under it, and then, yeah, it was just a nightmare. Um, and they stayed like that. Yeah, outside for the next five years, and water got into the cockpits, and some of the cockpits were like swimming pools. Some of the ones that have gone to museums, uh, they're in museums because they'll never fly again because of the corrosion damage that was caused by the water getting in. Yeah, really, really disappointing that you know that's what happened to them after how well they'd been looked after and got pushed outside, and that was they couldn't even cut the grass. <coughs> Yeah, there were some quite good cartoons. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, in 2011, uh, by then, the Labor government had finally been removed from office and National was in power with ACT as their um, coalition partner. Heather Roy was the uh, ACT Associate Minister of Defence and I'd been working with her for quite a few years on what we should be doing with these. And I, you know, if I had my way, they would have should have gone to the training school at Woodburn they would have been brilliant there for replacing the strike masters and Sues and Devons and other things that were just so obsolete. But uh, for political reasons, they weren't allowed to do that because the Skyhawks had to be disposed of. You know. um, so when National and Act got into power, Heather Roy sort of already knew what should happen to them, but um, I said, well, if you can't give them to the school, give them to museums. And fortunately, that's what happened. Um, we managed to get nine of them to museums as well as eight of the Mackies. And we've got two of those aircraft here. Um, just some shots of some of them going to museums and um, now on display in them. 
the Australian Navy had always wanted one of these back and it had actually been written in the contract when we bought them that we had to give them one back when we disposed of them. And again, it was only me going to Heather Ryan and says, it's in the contract, you have to do it. And she went, oh, okay, we'll be going to have a look. Yeah, sure enough, it was. So so they, they did a good job, though. The owners that have did the whole thing, converted it back to a TA4G. They did all the mods, took the drag chute off it, changed the fin tip, and made it look like a G again, and then um, painted it even. Has it still got a cargo cockpit? Yeah, it has. It's just, yeah, it was a bit hard to convert the cockpit. They took everything out of it. But, <laughs> so then Dragon International came along and at the last minute they they um, saved the rest of the aircraft because they were getting chopped up. Um, that, that was what was going to happen. But their CEO, Jared Isaacman, was on his honeymoon in the States and, and heard about they were going to get chopped up. So he stopped his honeymoon <laughs> and flew out to New Zealand and says, I'll buy them. So it was... Yeah. So he got yeah eight A4s, nine Mackies, and all the spares and support equipment, simulators for just eight and a half million dollars, a bargain. But then he had to get them all going again. So, so he had to pay for all the dismantling, shipping, and all that. So it was a pretty big big job to get them going again. And then 2015, he had all eight flying in the states, and with a lot of help from ex RNZF engineers that went over there for two or three months at a time and helped get them going. Um, safe Air, Field Air, and Army uh, doing all the avionics. Safe Air doing the engines and systems. And then, yeah, they've got a really great facility over there. Um, you'll notice they've kept the RNZF markings, the Kiwis, and the squadron markings on the fin, both sides, and even on the wings. That's a little bit unusual, that normally doesn't happen. But that was, uh, they got special permission to do that from New Zealand government because they were very aware of the history of the aircraft in New Zealand and very proud of that history and wanted to um, recognise New Zealand's contribution to them. So, so that's how they are still flying around in the States. Clapped out. Clapped out, yeah. <laughs> Not only did they get the aircraft, they got all of the practice weapons, even the rocket pops, bomb launchers, and they're now certified by the FAA to, to drop weapons. Uh, as part of the training they're doing with the US military, which is again a first in the States to have a civilian aircraft on the FAA registered. I, don't know what I think you might have dropped practice bombs with your ones at 80 side years. Yeah, but these guys are stuff today? I don't know if they've done any live stuff yet, but they're now. No, no, I mean the stuff that we had. No, they didn't get any of the weapons, they just got the <laughs> practice ones. Yeah. Just some shots from the guys. Over there, they've been. Um, they're based at Nellis Air Force Base now, so that's where Red Flag's held, and they're really involved with all that stuff. Just as aggressor aircraft, flying against anything and everything that comes to Nellis. Cheap, yeah, yeah, really cheap. Yeah, they love them. Um, they bought some ex-Israeli um, A4Ns as well. You can tell they're A4Ns because they've got the extended tailpipe and they've got humps, but they sneakily painted them exactly the same colours as ours. So when they're coming into a dogfight, they all look the same, though. even though these haven't got a radar and no avionics systems. But at least they, they merge and they look like they're all the same. Um, so they've got six of those as well now. But they're still using the original cargo avionics. They haven't done anything to it. It's still going, and, which is pretty amazing for something that's 30 years old now for computer technology. And that's their flight line at Nellis. 
Yeah, and that's the one they lost the other day, engine failure. Um, there's a couple of other Skyhawks in the RNZF. There's the one here, the, the original 07, which was an ex-US Navy A4C slash L, modified to an A4K, so that's still here in the back of the hangar here. And a Hakia also put together a Skyhawk, which is the secret Skyhawk that no one knows about. And that was because in 2001, 2002, when it was all over, they were all for sale and there was no way there was going to be a Skyhawk kept in New Zealand. And we knew we had enough bits to make one, so we did, we did just that. Um, we, yeah, the front fuselage was from a US Navy TA4 that we purchased that had been crashed off an aircraft carrier that had been in the sea. That was the first aeroplane I ever worked on in the Air Force in 1984 or 1985. Um, our fuselage was you purchased from the Blue Angels to repair the 18 when it rolled over and broke its fin. So it didn't have a fin on it, so we had to make a fiberglass fin took a mould off an aircraft and made it. The wing was one of the spare wings we had because we had quite a lot of spare wings. And the rest of it was just easy to cobble together you know, weapons and all the bits and pieces to make it happen. So yeah, that's still at a Hakia. And unfortunately it hasn't been looked after particularly well. And it doesn't look like that anymore. So yeah, any questions? Which was the one that ended up in uh, three store, the pieces ended up in three store for a long time. Was it a Skyhawk? Was it a Skyhawk? I always thought it was. Not the Mackie. It was difficult to tell. The There's a Mackie just so small. out there. That was the Mackie that we lost when it had an engine failure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was a, a Skyhawk there. So, like I said, the Skyhawks are still flying around the world. There's various. Um, Argentina and Brazil still operate them in their militaries and Brazil was flying them off the aircraft carrier still and numerous um, civil contractors around the place still flying them and quite a few private, the only ones that are gradually coming back into... 1954? Yeah, first flight, 1954. Yeah. Yeah. They've done well and like I said, the A7 Corsair, which was the A4's replacement, they're all gone. None of them flying. So yeah. It's a great design. I just want to add this. This is from a couple of weeks ago and this at Tauranga at the 75 Squadron reunion um, of the 130 Skywalk pilots that ever went through the RNZF, they had 65 of them made, around 65. So those were all Skywalk pilots in front of the Skywalk. Including two US Navy exchange pilots that flew them over here in exchange, so that was pretty cool for them to come. And one Draken pilot came from the States as well. There were three Americans. Sorry, what's the yeah. two US Navy one, you guess it? Yeah. Thank you very much, Don. That's been That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.